0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Remember how it felt to find a postcard in your letterbox? For a brief moment, you can imagine yourself on Waikiki Beach or watching the sunset over Uluru. Hey, Miyukioki Ranta here. And on the next four episodes of Earshot, we're returning to our series of audio postcards from across the country. This time, it's greetings from Elizabeth. Mm-hmm a suburb on the outskirts of Adelaide, where Oz rock legends like Jimmy Barnes and Glenn Shorrock first jumped on a stage. Nick O'Connor from Northern Sound System is our guide to a tale of football, meat pies, kangaroos, Holden cars and electric guitars.
2: I'm a musician and a community worker. I've been working in Elizabeth for over a decade. It's about 30 k's north of the centre of Adelaide in the middle of nowhere. But it's a place that tells a truly amazing tale of post-colonial Australia. Migrants, cars, rock and roll. Let's go back in time. So far back now, it's hard to remember.
3: But no, it was a momentous time for the Sherrick family.
2: Elizabeth, South Australia. To you perhaps just a name, but to us here in South Australia, a city the newest planned city in the Commonwealth of Australia. It's also a place where a bunch of 60s musos like Glenn Shorrock and Jimmy Barnes grew up and learned their trade.
4: Glenn lived in Elizabeth North and Jim Barnes lived in Elizabeth West. I grew up with both of them. It was quite an amazing time actually and it was for a while the center of music in Australia.
3: Well it was very dry. Summertime was like living in a hairdryer.
4: It was interesting because we we had gone to Australia House in Manchester and uh, of course they told us that the streets were paved with gold and all of that sort of thing that they do with, with immigrants.
2: We can build houses for you, but it's people who make homes. Like this family from Manchester.
4: So we, we left the UK in the depth of winter and uh, arrived in Australia and it was 100 degrees and my mother wasn't terribly impressed. She thought we'd died and gone to hell.
5: Yeah, we went on that six-lane highway and I thought, wow, this, this is sensational. And it was all new. All the shops were new, all the houses were new, and all the houses were different, you see. Where we lived in England in housing estates, all the houses were identical, you know. The Main North Road, even now, is still a bloody good road. To me, Elizabeth
3: is a place you want to drive through real fast.
2: Main North Road is a uh, very long, you know, four lane journey. You would travel up north
3: and go through a place called Paraka, where the abattoirs
2: were. All very romantic, it was. There's a lot of dirt, a lot of trees, in between prefab industrial, cement, warehouse, retail outlets, couldn't forget the servos and the fast food. You drive down the main roads and then all the houses you see are all
0: bought houses, but then they would surround an area and inside were all the housing
2: trust houses, which we call double bangers mostly. I've been driving it for over a decade now. I've got a strange relationship with it. It's like, it'd be easy to throw a, throw a stone at it, but it's, you know, it's very um, functional. It's, you know, like it's, it's a culture, that's for sure. There wasn't much in
3: Elizabeth. I remember we had a, a row of shops that were built. I think there was a drapers, there was a, a butcher.
0: But we knew one family, they were Dutch,
3: it's about thirteen kids or something,
0: and they had two double bangers that both had five bedrooms or something ridiculous like that.
3: A milk bar, and a telephone box, and that was our that was our nightlife. Yeah, when I was about fifteen years of age, we'd all sort of congregate round the telephone box because <laughs> that was that was the the brightest light in the in the vicinity of where I lived. And then a a, a drive-in was built, and that changed a lot of things. Oh boy, did it change a lot of things. Wow, that was my sexual education, the (laughs) drive-in. I won't go into that. Although I did go into that. The main north road was a, uh, a dividing road between working-class people and um, snotty-nosed people who lived up in the Adelaide foothills. But the main north road did what it was supposed to do. It went mainly north. <laughs> yeah, I was from the working-class side.
2: <laughs> it's a busy, thriving community, and there's still room for many, many
3: more. Perhaps that's where you come in. The town of Elizabeth was out uh, Growing in, in size, constantly getting bigger and bigger, and at the same time, Elvis Presley sang "Heartbreak Hotel," Bill Haley sang "Rock Around the Clock," Sergeant Bilko was on television, uh, Rawhide, Gunsmoke—all those things. Uh, great dollop of American culture hit me in 1956 and changed my life. I was doing a turn, as we used to say, at a sort of youth club dance, come police boys club and I was miming with a cardboard guitar around my neck, which I'd cut out and made for myself. The record player broke down and I carried on singing it by myself and found that I could do it and uh, people clapped at the end of it and that was it.
4: Baker. This is a house I grew up in. The night I became Mayor of Elizabeth, I, of course you have to write a, an acceptance speech and that sort of thing, and, and I can distinctly recall saying, I, I'm sitting in this chair just not believing that I've been fortunate enough to, uh, to be able to reach this position. Mum and Dad bought this house on the 4th of March um, 1958. and. This has been our home ever since. Jobs weren't very well, so they decided that they'd look elsewhere, and they looked at Canada, they looked at South Africa, and they looked at Australia, and fortunately, Australia was the the choice. Coming from England, of course, we were expecting a station, and when we saw the sign, Elizabeth South, we opened the door, and there was a plank.
2: This was a future mayor of Elizabeth looking at a piece of wood indicating a train station.
4: It was over 100 degrees when we got there. It was quite mind-boggling to to think, but you come from an industrial area in the UK and everything's built up and, of course, it's dark and it's dank and you've got this sort of sunshine and and red dirt and, um, yeah, coming up here. And there was all these brand spanking new empty houses Then we had all these keys to go and look at them all.
0: Elizabeth, a brand new city with a bright future, a good place to grow.
4: Sir Thomas Playford, he was a Liberal Premier of South Australia. He was the Liberal Premier for 27 years and he was probably the best Labour-orientated Liberal. He was a man who had a vision... And he made that statement. You build General Motors Holdens and I will bring the people. And that's exactly what he did.
6: My husband and I are delighted to have been able to come and see Elizabeth and so many of its people.
2: Elizabeth was named after the Queen, who came and gave it the royal blessing in 1963.
6: May this town and its people prosper and develop in the years to come.
2: Elizabeth was born by project officers, wasn't it? It was, it was like perfectly planned, it was going to work perfectly, you know, the ones could drop off the kids and go to the shop on the way home and there was one in every area and whatever. And of course nothing works to plan, but Holden kind of almost made the plan come true in a way.
5: What's your favourite car, Australia? Holden! Let me see, that's football, meat pies, kangaroos and Holden cars, huh? Right! Well, you sure sound like Australia to me! We
6: yeah.
5: Well, then you better tell me again, because I just might forget.
2: The American multinational General Motors was enticed to build a Holden plant out at Elizabeth in 1958.
3: It was a ready-made workforce in the town. My father was a and turner. He made the for the manufacturing uh, Holden cars. My name's Stuart Underwood. I um, commenced work
5: at General Motors Holden's Elizabeth plant on the 27th of May 1969. I was 16 years old and I scored a job in the body assembly area where the cars were being made you couldn't have a, a PA system, because you, you couldn't hear it over the noise, you know. Around oh, oh. right about 8.30, things had settled down. That's when I used to sneak off and, and grab a pasty. My favorite spot was to look at the final paint oven. The last oven was very hot. It was approaching, or oh, 190 degrees Fahrenheit. And what the paint used to do was actually melt melt again and then it would reflow they call it reflow so the paint became almost liquid again and these bodies used to come out of this oven absolutely gleaming pristine ah and I used to love it because it was a bit like a ghost train you know it was the exit of a ghost train it was like a big oven to fit a, a car in there a body and uh, you didn't know what was coming next
1: there's a whisper on the wind.
5: HG Monaro GTS 350 in lakeside green. You talk about reflow, I just melted. I just cried, I just, oh. Monaro by Holden, Australia's first sports machine. The racy looks of a high priced continental rally car, but no fancy foreign price tag. You know, I had to keep my mouth shut sometimes because I was start to see things that were months ahead of release. And we we were doing well, we were doing, we were the jewel in the crown. The Yanks had come over and they said, we are nowhere near what you guys are doing.
0: It was terrible at that time. Nobody gave a shit. You know, and I remember, I think it was just before I started, that busted this big ring that we, in, during the night shift we were using forklifts to lift whole motors over the back fence onto waiting trucks. My name's Eric Algra. I grew up from a very young age in Elizabeth and uh, became a photographer um, and have produced a, a book about Elizabeth called This Is Our Town. Holdens were going through the, the whole burst of starting with the Commodore, and they were taking on you know, thousands of people to run three shifts, you know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So I thought, like, oh, I need something to do, I need a job. And uh, it was during that, during that job that I used the money by my first camera and um, made the decision from there to go and study photography. There were definitely a lot of people who were having a good time, you know, and um, yeah, having a good life, especially after the deprivations of the war for their parents. It must
2: have been fantastic. A lot of older Australians know about Holden and Elizabeth, but they don't necessarily know about the music. They might know about the bands that have their roots here: the Angels, Chisel, the Twilights, whose lead singer Glenn Shorrick went on to become an international soft rock star. Oh, There was a, a,
3: a man called the Reverend Howell Witt, and he took it upon himself to keep teenagers off the streets, because a lot of the teenagers were getting into mischief, I being one of them, because there wasn't much to do. So um, he encouraged teenagers to come to his sort of um, dance club, and uh, anybody could have a, a go at singing, and. Paddy, Mike, and myself, we were quite good at just standing up there and singing uh, pretty simple folk songs and people like the Kingston Trail. Uh, hang down your head, Tom, do leave, hang down your head and cry. Hang down your head, Tom, do leave,
0: poor boy, you're bound to die.
3: And then in 1963, one of the newly arrived migrants, and they, they were newly arriving almost weekly. You know, you'd meet someone with the latest haircut and he said, this is uh, the best group in Liverpool, they're called the Beatles. And we went, the Beatles, what does that mean? Anyway, we, we looked at this, they didn't pay much attention to it until we heard, please, please me. And that rocked our socks off. And all of a sudden, we're caught up with Beatlemania. We all started wearing black skivvies and combed our hair forward and tried to talk like Liverpoolians. <laughs> Adelaide, of course, in the 60s, was buzzing with different, what they call discotheques.
6: Uh, There's all crazy young people there, screaming and shouting, I oh, you think that they were the Beatles on there. They're all going crazy. And, it, you know, like, it was good fun. Valerie Bywater's... We met at a a nightclub in Hindley Street. No, Beat Basement basement in Brundle Street. I was probably 16, and he was 17, 18. We were both very young when we got married. Hi,
3: my name is John Bywaters. Um, I was a member of the, uh, the group The Twilights, which were in existence from about 1964 to 1969. We had 13 singles and two albums and uh, went to England and recorded over there at Abbey Road. And um, generally, as we like to put on our passports, uh, teenage idol was our occupation. <laughs> I don't know if anybody ever believed us, but we put that on our re-entry cards back into Australia. <laughs> I had a little red sports car. I was lead singer of a pop band. It was wonderful. Oh,
6: yeah, he was a bit of a teenage idol. He was. If you look at pictures of Glenn when he was younger, he was a very handsome man. And he always had lots of girls hanging around him. If the guys didn't have a girlfriend there, they'd be sure to be all right for the rest of the night. And I think that's a horrible thing for, especially for me, because we were married for so young. And we were just poked in the background, and nobody ever takes any notice of what's in the background. It's like you're invisible. But they were all the same. They just used to strut around all the time because they could. And all the girls were screaming and shouting. And
2: A lot of that first wave of migrants to Elizabeth were coming fresh from World War II Europe. Although mainly British, there were other nationalities, like Eric Algra's Dutch father. Yeah, I suppose it
0: doesn't hurt to talk about it. My father was an alcoholic, you know, and he was an angry man. He'd, he'd really been through a terrible time during the war. He was a prisoner of war in Japan, working on a shipyard as slave labor for three years. So he wasn't particularly happy. He didn't get to do his university degree like all his brothers did. Um, worked at Holden's as a fitter and turner, would go on a drinking spell, tell them to stick it up their ass, get the sack or quit and be unemployed for God knows how long, find jobs doing all various things. But Holden's always took him back. That was the funny thing. I don't know how many different times he worked there. He did his best, but it wasn't always pleasant being at home because of his anger, I suppose. I did some research afterwards as well. There is such a thing as multi-generational trauma. My father experienced this trauma. His, you know, I don't know, what you kind of inherited it.
2: Jimmy Barnes has put Elizabeth on the national radar with books about his childhood. Here he is on ABC Radio, plugging Working Class Boy.
1: Outside of, of the factory on the streets of Elizabeth and the parts of Adelaide that you'd hang out in as a teenager, how rough did things get, Jimmy? I
5: started taking, you know, hard drugs when I was 12 or 13 years old. I, you know, I, I first time I got drunk was I was nine, so by the time I was 14, I was well and truly out of control. I was in gangs, I was fighting, I was, you know, you know, just up to all sorts of mischief, And uh, and I really... My future wasn't looking good.
4: I find it interesting with Jim because I knew him when he was growing up and each time he tells the tale, the nose gets longer and the tail gets taller.
0: With regards to Jim's book, I read it, like I knew him as a young man, as a very young man, as a teenager, before he went off and became famous. And uh, we used to hang out at the local shopping centre, a centre, as we would call it. And we'd hang out there, there was a coffee lounge there. Yeah, some of the stories he told, I could totally relate to. He talks about his his older brother having a fight with a couple of bikies. I saw that. I was there, and I was I was sick in the stomach. I could not believe Swanee, who I really liked. He always looked out for me, which was great. I always felt comfortable when Swanee was around. No one was going to pick on me, because he had a reputation, as you can imagine. But what he did to these two guys, he just didn't stop. But the thing with Jim was, I didn't realise just how bad things were for him. Reading that book made me cry, you know, just how shocking it was for him. You know, I thought I had it bad, but I had a dream life at home compared to that.
5: You know, I grew up in a fairly sort of rough, you know, uh, sort of area, but you know, a, a tough house, you know, my, my parents had a lot of problems. There was a lot of violence in the house, a lot of drinking, uh, it was very promiscuous. It was. Uh, it was hard to sort of stay focused.
4: It was it was territorial because certainly we uh, in the days when we were at school and that sort of thing, there were there were the boys from Elizabeth West and there were the boys from Salisbury North and that sort of thing. And but I think that was that was a way that young people created their own environments.
5: Somebody would come down looking for trouble, but it was more like oh yeah 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 oh yeah you know.
2: So Elizabeth has a bit of a reputation, and there's actually a local street named Bogan Road. No one seems to know why.
5: Bogan is a word that crept in uh, probably tw- 25 years ago. I didn't know what it what it meant, but it just means a scruff, a drug-addled person that wears a flannelette shirt and ripple soles or something, you know, and. So it's coming into our, what would you say, vernacular nomenclature?
0: Bogan Road. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
2: I think I've driven past it and, yeah, and just, you know, had a chuckle and, and semi wondered, like, kind of hoped that maybe Bogan had some other meaning I wasn't aware of. Like, surely it's not the literal, you know, Urban Street Dictionary meaning. Um, but, you know. Who knows, maybe it is.
0: It, it, I was really disappointed. There used to be a bottle shop there called the Bogan Bottle Shop, which, you know, would have been fabulous to photograph, but they changed the name of it. The council thought, oh, this is kind of inappropriate in modern sort of, you know, language. We'll change it, but the locals didn't want it changed.
4: The, the decision at the end was not to, yeah.
0: Interesting thing, at the, at the exhibition, I had two exhibitions of this work. The Bogan Road photo. There was just always a crowd of people hanging around and talking about it. Oh, I thought my photograph
2: would have been most popular. (laughs) Nobody at City Council could tell me how it got that name. There's a funny ownership of that shitty character. You know, like, I think um, if you you absorb the hate and and wear it with pride, there's a strength there, and, you know, I think the North does that. Mm. When Elizabeth's Youth Music Centre, the Northern Sound System was set up, all conversations focused on the area's musical history.
4: That was came out of the ideas that Elizabeth was based on music and kids were into music and that sort of thing. So let's give it another try.
2: But when you take that to the kids, they're just like Glenn Who, like um, they're not into that music. And if you know, if they do know it, um, they hate it because their parents like it. Elizabeth legend Jimmy Barnes had a big brother, John Swan, or Swanee. Um, I've heard some great stories, like um, there was one drum kit and, you know, Swanee sort of acquired a pram to chuck the kit in and it would go from band rehearsal to band rehearsal. And I mean, that's a very illustrative sort of story. Uh, Obviously, there was a lot of young sort of displaced people with a lot of vibes making the most of, you know, the tools they had to them. We're going for a tour now through the Northern Sound System. We're gonna have a look at some different spaces. And uh, oh, here's Coyote, he's coming in for his uh, DJ set in the broadcast studio. Hello, what's all about? Uh, we're just talking about Elizabeth, you know about? Uh, well the history, yeah, it was, there were a lot of history making
3: milestones. The royal family visited here before.
2: I don't know, like I grew up in um, relatively middle class, southern suburb and And I suppose there's a huge lacking energy from what I grew up in that is terribly present here. Like even today, I know that the fashion in the teenagers in the northern suburbs is way more on point and so much more aggressive and communicative than the um, trackies and hoodies that I see at Foodland where I go. And I think, yeah, I don't know, I think maybe like what do you do with all that energy? It's got to come out somewhere. What are you guys recording in here? Uh, in here, we have Locke George is working on a song
3: he's recorded with Dave before. Oh, sweet. Yeah. I don't usually do this type of style of music. I normally do uh, trap-type music, but I just
2: wanted to do something more people-friendly. It's like these kids have cultural memories of the music of the area without actually knowing it. Maybe we could figure out a way to get the best of both worlds and um, you know, like implement a little more grit in, in um, households that are perhaps too safe and also a little more safety, You know, a little more buffer. If you're talking about the really difficult end of society, I think it's um, a terrible tragedy that um, you know, any kid has to grow up with some of the shit that they do. You should when I told you. now I feel like it's over.
5: It's something many of us never thought we'd see, Australia without Holden.
2: Obviously, in closing there was loads of talk and you could feel the emotional baggage and um, there was, you know, like a financial, um, sort of social-financial ripple effect. Yeah, I think if anything, it's just sort of like some stuff you can't undo. And it's like, when you turned out that light, you know, like Holden in the north, uh, you know, I feel nostalgic when I see Holden badges. I drive a Commodore, you know.
3: You know, I still love going back there. My mother's 101 now, and she's still there. My my sister's there. I've still got a lot of old colleagues from the Twilights and various other musos. A lot of people laugh at me, so it it was a very rough place, it was in some respects, but that was where I did, I sowed my wild oats and (laughs) that's where it all happened, baby.
5: Quite often, I say, how lucky, how blessed am I, you know, walking up the steps into the main office, which is where I worked, and going, I work for the biggest corporation in the world, got the best-selling car in Australia, won all the Car of the Year awards, and um, Holden's was sponsoring the footy team, Central District's football team.
0: Can I say one thing about that? Is that we would go out to the other grounds, the crap we got for coming from Elizabeth. And I couldn't understand, as a very young kid, started doing this as a very young kid, there was a supporter bus, and my brother and I would go. I couldn't understand what they were talking about.
1: It
4: was just something that you learnt to cope with, I think, because there was, there was definitely that, that attitude towards people, and notwithstanding the fact that Mr Playford decided to call the place Elizabeth, which, uh, which didn't really help the cause, to be perfectly honest. May this
6: time and its people prosper and develop in the years.
1: Our guide on Greetings from Elizabeth was Nick O'Connor on the lands of the Ghana people and it was produced by Greg Appel with engineering by John Jacobs. Next time on Earshot, we'll take you to Nambour behind the Sunshine Coast, home to Kevin Rudd, Wayne Swan and a string of Miss Sugar Towns. This is Earshot. I'm Yuki Okiranta and I'll catch you next time.